American politics has reached a moment of existential uncertainty, with problems bigger than any one administration. My name is James Wallner, and I host the podcast Politics in Question with Lee Drutman and Julia Azari. On our show, we take a step back and discuss how our political institutions are failing us, ideas for fixing them, and what American politics could look like if citizens questioned everything. You can find our show on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and at our website, politicsinquestion.com. All podcasters know the best way to grow your show is through word of mouth. And so, this season, we're trying something new. We created a referral link that makes it easy to share the podcast by text, email, or DM to your friends, family, or anyone else you know who could use a little dose of inspiration for civic engagement and our collective future. If you use the link to share our show with five friends who then download the podcast, I'll send you a handwritten thank you note and a future hindsight button to thank you for your support. If you share it with 10 friends who download an episode, I'll send you a branded future hindsight moleskin notebook. Yep, a real moleskin notebook with our logo on it. Follow the link in the show notes to help us spread the word. And thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Devlin Barrett. He's a reporter focusing on national security and law enforcement for The Washington Post and writes about the FBI and the Justice Department. He's the author of October's Surprise, How the FBI Tried to Save Itself and Crashed an Election. This is a special bonus pre-election episode. As we approach Election Day 2020 at the end of a turbulent October, our interview is a reminder that the FBI served the American public an unintended October surprise in the 2016 election, an event from which Hillary Clinton did not have the time and space to recover. Despite the best efforts of the president's allies, their planned October surprises this year have failed to animate our electorate, whether it's the hacked computer of Hunter Biden or the joint announcement of DNI Radcliffe and FBI Director Ray about the election interference by Russia and Iran. For the most part, Americans have already made up their minds and there's little that will change their decision about who to vote for. With record turnout in early voting across the US, it's unlikely that any surprise now will affect the outcome. I don't really feel like people have any obligation to spend the rest of their lives trapped in 2016. But I do hope that people come away when the dust settles on this election with a better understanding of maybe some of the pitfalls in terms of not just the politics of the world, but conspiracy theories and how ideas that are attractive to you may just not be true. And we need to approach everything in life with healthy skepticism. In a lot of ways in 2016, what you see is people can't distinguish facts from conspiracy theories. And that creates real problems in the real world. We examine the role of the Bureau's culture, hubris, and institutional breakdown in bringing this about, and why 2020 appears to be different. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mila. 
So you tell the story about how Comey and the FBI came to deliver the October surprise of 2016 that many argued derailed Clinton's presidential campaign. Why did you decide to publish this story? So I've covered the FBI as a reporter for more than 20 years. And what I saw in 2016 was just incredible to me. I, I couldn't believe it at the time. And in some ways, it, it became more unbelievable at, after 2016. What the FBI did got, got fed through a political meat grinder of sorts. And I think a lot of people still to this day misunderstand exactly what the FBI did and why they did it. So that's why I wanted to write the book. Why is it important for the American people to understand what happened? Because I think not only do people not understand, but also people don't understand why they should know what happened. Right. And I think one of the ways in which the conversation got sort of off the tracks right after the election in 2016 is that people spent a lot of their time trying to figure out whether the FBI was trying to make one person or one party the president. But that question actually camouflages the real reason for what the FBI did and what Comey did. And that's that Comey and the FBI were primarily concerned about Comey and the FBI. And they prioritized those concerns over the election for president. And it really needs to be understood better because I certainly think the main institutions of government cannot endure many more elections like 2016. I think it caused a lot of problems that are still with us today. And so I wanted the book to stand as a kind of maybe cautionary tale that these things were horrible misjudgments, horrible misunderstandings of the moment, and they had tremendous consequences for the country. It would be great if in the telling, people generally were, were more aware of what happened and why and more wary of going down that road ever again. So what is the culture at the FBI and what is the role of that culture in bringing about this chain of events? So I think there's two things where the work culture at the FBI really impacted the decisions they made in 2016. The first is that the FBI is what Comey always called a face culture. And he meant that in the sense of saving face. And so the desire to avoid embarrassment at all costs is a really driving motivator for a lot of folks who work at the FBI. And that's true of the lowest case agent to the director. A lot of the folks making these decisions at the FBI were very much focused on what do we do that doesn't make us look bad. And two, the other part that was really important was that the FBI had never really seen a candidate like Donald Trump before. If you're talking about an organization that is so focused on saving face, a very shame-averse culture, it was almost inconceivable to a lot of them that someone like Donald Trump, who as a candidate, his basic premise of, of candidacy was, well, I'm not ashamed of anything I've done. I'll never apologize for anything and I'll never take back anything. And shame has no meaning to me. And so I think a lot of folks in the FBI looked at a candidate like that, not really having any sort of personal ability to connect with that type of personality. And they thought to themselves, well, this guy can never win. It's impossible. And that would be true if 
the only voters were, you know, folks in the FBI. But I think the reality is that within the FBI, they did not perceive the degree to which that lack of shame on Trump's part was not a weakness. It was a selling point for him. That was part of his pitch to the American people. When it came time for the FBI to make decisions, they made those decisions assuming there's no way that Donald Trump can actually win. So it's okay if we send a letter to Congress 11 days before the election because Donald Trump can't win. And obviously, that was a huge misjudgment. Yeah, indeed, a huge misjudgment. I remember at the time when this was all going down, it felt like the decision to have that weird press conference that Comey had in July and then the subsequent reopening of the email probe in October, it felt like it was just the FBI and Comey covering their asses because they fully expected Clinton to win and therefore they didn't want ever to be, in hindsight, any evidence that they were favoring her. They had this radical transparency, which actually wasn't radical or transparent in the end. But talk a little bit more about that because I think that deserves some fleshing out. And you're absolutely right. There's two key events that are crucial to understanding the FBI's role in who wins the presidency that year. One is, as you mentioned, Comey holding a press conference in early July to announce that he is closing the Clinton email case, he is recommending no charges, and basically the case is closed. But he did it in such a strange way, in such an unusual way, particularly for the FBI, that it created a set of conditions that would be hugely consequential once it became October. And you mentioned cover your ass, CYA. CYA became a huge motivating factor for so much of what the FBI did from July to October of that year. So Comey gives this press conference in July announcing he's closing the Clinton email case. And that itself was a huge departure from what, how the FBI and the Justice Department are supposed to work because the attorney general has no idea what he's going to say. She watches it on TV like everyone else while an intern on her first day in the FBI press shop actually knows what Comey's going to say. And that's how out of whack that whole process was. Even though Comey is very critical of Clinton as he announces that he won't file any charges, what happens politically is the Republicans in Congress are very mad at him because he's not charging. And the Democrats are very happy with him because he's not charging. What happens months later is that a new batch of emails are found and suddenly they have to decide what they're going to do with this. And the political dynamic that's been created around this case is that the FBI is worried about the Republicans being mad at them. But the FBI isn't worried about the Democrats being mad at them because the Democrats keep thanking the FBI for their service, essentially. When it comes time to decide what to do with these new emails, Comey and the FBI feel that they have to do it in a way that doesn't make the Republicans too angry at them. What they come up with is this notion that they will send a letter to Congress telling them that they are reopening the investigation less than two weeks before Election Day. And in their minds, what they're doing is they're protecting the FBI from being attacked by congressional Republicans after Hillary is elected president, because what they're really afraid of is being accused of helping Hillary get elected. That's an important distinction because they cannot imagine 
the universe in which Donald Trump is elected. And that's their, you know, fatal error, I think, in the final moment. But as you said, it, it builds from July, from that first press conference, and the series of events that happen starting in July really leads to this larger, more consequential misjudgment. So one of the takeaways for me was that these human traits, you know, people wanting to save face and also covering your ass is another human trait. You know, we all don't <laughs> want to be blamed for something. Sure. You described at the beginning of the book how the FBI transformed. Maybe there is sort of a turning point where they can go back and see how do we use to do this and how can we protect ourselves and the nation from having another monumental error like this? Absolutely. And I, th I think there's a couple ways in which a lot of this drama and unintended consequences could have been avoided. The first is, as you point out, after 9-11, the FBI completely changes as an agency. It goes from being a primarily law enforcement look for criminals and arrest criminals, put them on trial and put them in prison, it really becomes a national security focused agency primarily. That becomes its number one goal. And not just in the sense of find them and arrest them and put them on trial, but disrupt terror plots before they happen. When you go years out from 9-11, what happens is you realize that the criminal investigators who are more used to being in sort of what you might call the political fray because they arrest politicians sometimes and they arrest people with high profiles sometimes. Those folks are sort of in the backseat of the FBI and they really resent the way national security agents, people like Andy McCabe, some others are really running the show. But it creates a secondary problem that no one really recognizes until it's too late which is that all those national security agents are just less experienced with the world of politics and with the world of sort of high profile public fights. And so when it comes time to make important decisions on these big cases, the people Comey has assembled around him really don't have a ton of what you might call political corruption experience or just high profile non-terrorism case experience. And so they're not really seeing ahead very well the types of problems that they could encounter when dealing with something like the Clinton email case or dealing with something like the Trump-Russia case. And that is just a blind spot that that group has as they make decisions. And it haunts them. And you know there are folks in the FBI to this day who will insist, if you just had one or two men and women in that room who really came from the political corruption world, who really came from the world of just criminal cases, you would have had at least someone else saying, whoa, boss, hold on. You're going to create a real problem for yourself if you do that. And the other part where this sort of goes off the rails and where you can see an alternate universe where this is handled much better is Comey decides that only he can be trusted to make these decisions. He decides that his attorney general, Loretta Lynch, is compromised. His boss is basically unreliable, is the determination that Comey makes. But that misunderstands a basic role that the attorney general plays, which is to take the political blame for things that the Department of Justice does. And so one of the weird ways in which this plays out is because Comey takes all the decision making upon himself, he basically absolves the attorney general of any of the decision making. But really, 
the system is designed so that if there is, you know, blowback or political consequences to things the Department of Justice does, the place that that is supposed to fall hardest on is the attorney general. But by being so controlling, Comey has actually put all of the pressure on himself and on the FBI. And I think that was a very serious miscalculation, too. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me in the way that you retold this part of the story is how little initiative they took, each one of them, to communicate directly with each other. There would have been so much opportunity to actually have common ground and sharing the information, what one side was doing as opposed to the other, in order to know really what's happening and determine whether it's severe or not. But one of the things that you've mentioned just now also is that if they had just had somebody with a public integrity investigations background in there, they would have quickly determined that the emails were of no real consequence. But instead, this just continued to have legs and much to the detriment of the people who were in this core group surrounding Comey. Well, the lead agent on the Clinton email case at one point said, we did the Clinton email case to prove that we could do it, to show that the FBI would be a thoughtful and responsible party in this. Not so much because we thought there was a crime there. Our reputation was on the line and we needed to prove that we could handle it. That is arguably a pretty bad reason to open an investigation of a presidential candidate. That's the kind of let's call it nearsightedness, that happens on the national security side of the FBI sometimes. So that is part of the problem. But also, to your point, a lot of us did not realize the degree to which there was, in fact, a bad relationship between the head of the FBI and the head of the Justice Department. And when it got really you know, intense for both sides, you see that that bad relationship has horrible consequences because what you see is that the FBI director isn't talking to the attorney general. The attorney general, for reasons that are still inexplicable to some folks who used to work for her, is not willing or or prepared to go across the street and just yell at her subordinate because he's being insubordinate. And I think that has obviously huge consequences. So what are the consequences of the Bureau feeling like it had to prove this, that it could do it, and also having this culture of saving face in terms of other investigations that it's conducting across the country? First and foremost is that congressional Republicans, who used to be some of the biggest defenders of the FBI, are now regular outspoken critics of the FBI. And that's a bad place, obviously, for any agency to be in. But you need credibility. If you're the FBI, your credibility is everything. And they have, through the course of 2016, ended up with you know one party that is just regularly taking public shots at them. And not just one party, one president is regularly taking public shots at them. As one former FBI employee said to me, you know, you'd think he'd be grateful after what we did. But if anything, he's you know even tougher on us. The consequence for all these other cases is they have to do more work to show that they can be trusted. If you get outside the cases involving politicians, the FBI is still in very good shape. I I think a lot of people are willing and eager to trust the FBI in its handling of terrorism cases, financial crime cases, all manner of other cases. 
But I think they've paid a big price in terms of the political corruption piece of their work and anything that touches on politics for that matter. And I think, you know, as one law enforcement official said to me, you know, Pandora's box has been opened, Comey opened it, and I don't think we're ever going to get it closed again. To be honest, I've talked to other folks in law enforcement who aren't that pessimistic. They think they still can get on sort of the right side of these issues. But there's no question that when it comes to politically sensitive investigations, the FBI is in a worse place now than it was in 2016. We may have a brand new season of content to share with you, but one thing is staying the same. Our fabulous sponsor, Jordan Harbinger. Jordan produces a truly stellar podcast called, you guessed it, The Jordan Harbinger Show. In my opinion, almost all of the most insightful and impactful podcasts I listen to are interviews, and Jordan's are no exception. His conversations with guests are designed to inform and guaranteed to entertain. Making any subject approachable and exciting is a rare skill, even in the podcast field. But Jordan does it well, and he does it several times a week. Guests run the gamut from CIA spooks to famous athletes and successful business leaders to groundbreaking scientists. You never know what you're going to get, but you do know that you'll learn something new. If you like Future Hindsight, I think you'll enjoy The Jordan Harbinger Show, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. So in your mind, what would it take for the FBI to rehabilitate its credibility in terms of political investigations? This is a little simplistic, but they need to stay out of the presidential race if they possibly can. They need to show time and time again that they can be responsible on these other issues that America cares about, like security, like, you know, serious crime or major fraud, and leave the politics and just stay out of making decisions that affect political outcomes for a while. I think the public still actually, for the most part, wants to trust the FBI. But I think it'll take at least one presidential election that they just stay out of for that to happen. Yeah, definitely. Well, the fallout of 2016 was so long, right? And everybody lost their job. No, not everybody, but the main characters lost their jobs. Right. So many of the people who touch this have lost their jobs. And some of them have very different opinions as to, as to why that is and, and how fair it is. A lot of them feel like they were unfairly attacked and criticized. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. One of the ways in which 2016 was really toxic and corrosive to our politics is we now talk about our political opponents as criminals much more easily. And frankly, a lot of things that are bad aren't crimes. They can just be bad in and of themselves. Both parties actually tend to talk more about their opponents as criminals than just as people they disagree with or people who are wrong on this policy or that policy. Yeah, that's a good observation. I think we are so removed from the way that we used to think about politicians, you know, before 2016. I don't think we'll ever go back there. So unlike with the police, where it's much easier to demand accountability, how can we as everyday citizens, you know, demand a better way to investigate or a better way to think about investigations. I don't even really know how to ask or what to ask for, but what should we be asking for and how could we ask for that? 
So I think the main way that the FBI has been checked up on or had some oversight has been Congress. But one of the things we've seen in 2016, and it's only gotten, I think, worse since, is that Congress is so partisan that Congress is now looking to score political points through the FBI or on the FBI. And that makes it harder for people of good faith and good judgment to pressure the FBI to do better. You might get a more scared FBI, but I don't think you'll actually get a better FBI. And I think that's a real concern. But that's about Congress. And, you know, one of the ways in which I think 2016 really goes off the rails is because the FBI really does not trust Congress not to go after them. And you see that, I think, in the decisions in October and July of 2016, that they have lost faith in Congress as sort of a, a fair partner, a fair boss in the process. So if you think about a new administration next year, let's say, God willing, what are the opportunities for the FBI to transform itself into an agency that is more accountable to Congress and for Congress to actually conduct oversight in a way that's regenerative and constructive? That is a conversation and that is a question that is being asked everywhere, I think, in the Justice Department and everywhere in the FBI right now. Obviously, we don't know who's going to win this election, so I don't think anyone can predict the future. But everyone in federal law enforcement is having some version of this conversation where they're trying to figure out, what do we do if there is a post-Trump world to try to pull the FBI and the Justice Department out of some of these political battles. You're never going to be out of all the political battles. There will always be some measure of that. But it would be nice, I think, from the point of view of a lot of people in the Justice Department and a lot of people in the FBI, to not feel like the public perception of them may or may not contribute to a constitutional crisis at any given moment. If we get a new administration, how would you start sending signals to Congress and the public that we've turned the page on the hyper-politicization of the Justice Department and the FBI, and we're going to start a new chapter? Part of that is just changing personnel. I think there will probably be some interesting decisions if it comes to that about who to keep and who not to keep in some new administration. But the reality is you're still going to have a Congress to deal with. And you're still going to have a lot of political firepower trained on you. And I think for the next however many years, the FBI is going to have to prove itself in some quarters, that it's not going to do the kinds of things that Comey did in 2016. Maybe if we get a couple more elections under our belt, people will calm down a little on that front, but we'll have to see. Yeah, I might just take time. Well, we are now in October before another presidential election, and we are in full surprise mode already. <laughs> One surprise after another, day after day, and complete chaos in the White House. Is there another surprise that you are expecting now? If I can be a little political nerdy for a minute, you know, October surprise has a very specific definition. Its original definition was essentially some version of a dirty trick that comes so late in the election calendar that the candidate doesn't really have time or space to respond to it and voters don't really have time or space 
to digest it properly and think calmly and rationally about what it means or doesn't mean. So in that sense, I think the Comey letter in late October 2016 is probably the most significant October surprise we've ever seen. But by that definition, something like the president getting coronavirus, I don't think that is a classic version of an October surprise because you know that isn't something that was really done to him by a political opponent. That's just a, an incredibly surprising thing that happened in October. What have you learned from writing this book that you didn't expect? I've always been interested in the FBI. I've always been interested in their work culture. But the more I dug into 2016, I realized that work culture of the FBI really explained a lot more of what happened than I really understood at the time. That was a big part of why I wanted to write the book, because I felt like there were things going on in the FBI that were important internally to the FBI. And that, to me, was really interesting and really worth exploring and really worth trying to explain as well as I possibly could, because the consequences were so huge. I think the other thing I learned is that, to some degree, people don't want to revisit this stuff, which is fine. I don't really feel like people have any obligation to spend the rest of their lives trapped in 2016. But I do hope that people come away when the dust settles on this election with a better understanding of maybe some of the pitfalls in terms of not just the politics of the world, but conspiracy theories and how ideas that are attractive to you may just not be true. And, you know, we need to approach everything in life with healthy skepticism. I came away from the book thinking we should teach more civic engagement. We should teach more critical thinking. We should teach better rational analysis of facts versus non-facts. Because I think in, in a lot of ways in 2016, what you see is people can't distinguish facts from conspiracy theories. And that creates real problems in the real world. Yes, definitely. And it continues to. Well, here's my last question. Mm -hmm. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful is just the fact that people are asking the question, what's the next October surprise going to be? That is a good thing, I think, for the process. I think people are starting to realize that the way some people get information is, is not healthy and it, it's not actually accurate and it's not good for the system. And so what makes me optimistic is that I think some folks have learned some good lessons from 2016. I, I truly hope we are all still learning some of those lessons. Just to take one example, there was a murder conspiracy theory that grew up around Democrats hacked emails and it drove me absolutely crazy as a reporter because I couldn't seem to convince anyone or enough people, I guess I should say, that this was just some really dumb conspiracy theory. And now, actually, those conversations are, are easier in my world. People are more willing to consider the possibility that maybe someone is just making stuff up. And I know in 2016, it was very frustrating to me how often people would sort of look at you blankly if you said, I think he's just lying. <laughs> I think, weirdly, we are learning to be a little more skeptical hopefully not cynical, because to me, cynical is falling off the edge. But I hope we're learning to have sort of a smarter skepticism about our sources of information, about the implications of some of what we see in here. That is where I'm optimistic, that I, I do see a change for the better 
in terms of how we think and react to some of those things. Oh, I hope you're right. People are definitely consuming the news differently than they used to. And I agree, that's good news. But there's still a lot of belief in conspiracy theories and crazy, how can I say, followers of like QAnon. <laughs> and you're like, oh, no, please stop. Don't go there. <laughs> No, 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 no. I, I think that's absolutely true. And and I one of the most interesting conversations I had with someone in the course of writing the book was a guy who, as a kid in high school, some friend of his, you know, tried to convert him to sort of like the John Birch Society, just a very conspiracy laden racist set of nonsense, I think is the simplest way I can describe it. A light went off in my head because of the way he described it. He's like, look, this stuff has always existed in America. It's not like Trump has invented the conspiracy theory or Roger Stone in, invented a conspiracy theory. But now it's being promoted and amplified by sort of the grownups in the room, meaning the president or Fox News or some of these other places. That to me was sort of a light bulb moment because I thought, you know, we will always have conspiracy theories. They will always be here with us. To me, the key issue is, do people in important positions succumb to them or embrace them because they're comforting in some way? Or do people in important positions say, you know what, that stays out of the main world discussions of what life really is because we know they're garbage. I don't think you're ever going to get conspiracy theories off the internet. And what was concerning to me in 2016 was I think a lot of officials were falling for conspiracy theories. And what is hopeful to me is I think more officials are getting a little more savvy and responsible about those things. But we'll see. It is a big risk. And it's it's a risk to my profession. I think it's a risk to the government. I think it's a risk to a lot of folks. Yes, I do agree that there's more responsibility coming from elected officials and also from members of the press in not spreading more conspiracy theories around. Right. And I think one of the ways in which we're all like sort of maturing a little bit is you know, two or three years ago, every time a new conspiracy theory cropped up online, a lot of reporters and pundits and, and various other officials would sort of knowingly mock it and sort of retweet something with a, with a joke on top. And the reality is you're just a carrier for what I think of as like a brain virus. Dunking on stuff may make you feel good temporarily. That may give you a little dopamine rush. But you're, what you're actually doing is you're spreading a lie, even when you're dunking on something. So the responsible thing is to just ignore it. And I think that's counterintuitive in some ways, but it's really important. And I do feel little by little, more and more of us are learning to when they see something absurd, not just retweet a joke about how absurd this is, just ignore it. It's nonsense. And you making a joke out of it just gives it more oxygen. Yes, I agree 100%. Resist the urge to retweet nonsense and lies. <laughs> I wish more people would do the same thing that you do. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight. And congratulations on the book. Mila, thanks a ton. Since this is a civic engagement podcast, I couldn't agree more with Devlin about needing more civics education and training in critical thinking. Although it's true that many Americans are more discerning today about things that they read, we do still have some diehard believers in conspiracy theories like QAnon. I'm heartened that the efforts to derail Joe Biden's campaign with details about his son's hacked laptop two weeks before Election Day appear to be a hiccup in most parts of the country. I also appreciate Devlin's call 
that we not repeat falsehoods as a joke or even to debunk them. I hope we're finally waking up to what George Lakoff has been saying for many years. Always lead with the truth. Finally, perhaps the biggest and real surprise in this election is that we're now facing the third wave of COVID in these final days of voting. 43 states make it possible for their citizens to vote early, and if you haven't yet, please do so as soon as possible. Some states have cooling off periods between early voting and election day, so double check your state's rules. This is your opportunity to be heard, to elect the representatives who share your values and who can actually conduct proper oversight of the FBI. The last day you can vote is November 3rd, election day. If you want to hear more from our conversation about how Devlin came to write this book, Come check out our bonus Civics Club content on Patreon. Join us at patreon.com forward slash future hindsight. Next week, our guest is Maria Ewan. She's the founder of Issue Voter, whose mission is to enable equity by giving everyone a voice in our representative democracy. We help people engage between elections and really understand throughout the year what their reps are doing and make their voices heard regardless of who got elected. But the other thing that we have seen is that Issue Voter does motivate voter turnout. We have found that 30% of people using Issue Voter said that it's what motivated them to vote in the 2018 midterms. In other words, they wouldn't have voted without it. We've also had people using Issue Voter tell us that before Issue Voter, they didn't even know there could be another side to this issue. And so I think all of those things speak to how really understanding who their people's reps are and the policies that are being introduced can change people's behavior and habits around civic engagement year round. We talk about what's possible in being civically engaged in a post-pandemic world where we focus on policies rather than politics and getting the things done that most Americans do agree on. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sayan. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.